what's the most challenging experience you've had in business or at work? Probably the biggest challenge is communicating at cross purposes with people. Working with other people, like collaborating. Sometimes that can be very difficult. Different backgrounds, different cultures, so you have to kind of like adjust everyone to the same um, working style, then everything can move forward. It was dealing with a half a million dollars worth of debt. Wow, okay, that's a challenge. And how did you tackle that challenge? Uh, with difficulty. <laughs> yeah, there was a number of different strategies. We tried to sell our way out of it, we tried to uh, negotiate our way out of it, and we tried to legally get our way out of it. So, yeah, it was, um, it was really tricky. For We Teach Me, this is the Masters Series, where industry professionals share their secrets to business success. I'm Sad Pilshen Elmish from Written and Recorded. One of the most popular reasons for listening to this podcast is to hear business tales from living examples of startup success and sometimes tales of failure. In this episode, we're putting the usual tips and tricks aside to gather around our founders and simply listen to their stories. Business tales from the edge. In addition to working in his own business, JAG Capital, Graham Van Dam has worked with other businesses on merger and acquisition and in board roles. So we started trying to acquire other companies and the private equity companies and firms were just buying these things on massive multiples. So bugger, we'll sell it. So we did. So we ended up selling that thing for uh, six, an eight-figure number. Bill took more money off the table at that transaction than he had in the previous 20 years. We'll hear from Graham soon. First up, Jamie Lingham will share his experience as CEO of Absolute Immigration in a fireside chat with We Teach Me's Wayne Lewis. Jamie has been working passionately in immigration for over 15 years, contributing to immigration policy, compliance and strategies. Working in a highly complex field, Jamie says integrity is key. As a founder, you have to own every decision you make. I actually was in marketing and I was working for a company that did computer and internet packages. So I had great budgets, I was on a good salary and I was just bored. I was just flying around going, I don't love what I do, I'm not passionate about what I do. And my dad was doing immigration and he dealt with the sort of seedier end of town. He was dealing with getting people out of detention and he kept saying to me, you've got to get into immigration, you'll love it. And I looked at the people he was dealing with and I was like, forget it, these people are criminals, I don't want to deal with it. And anyway, so I finally said, okay, I'll give it a go. And I think I was in debt and I had no real plan. I went and did an immigration course and then just decided I'm going to just start. So I started in the bedroom of my house and just gave it a go. Your dad being a huge catalyst for that, was he something that you learned a lot of in that time or was he kind of, did you kind of have to educate yourself in the process and, and push on from there? Or? Yeah, the type of immigration that I worked on was significantly different to what he worked on. So I focused more on corporates, on attraction and retention strategies, on doing big compliance pieces for government departments. And so he was good on a number of things that helped navigate the immigration system. But I also had a lot of mentors around and that to me was the big thing. So 
I sort of faked it till I made it in a way. You go out and you, you got the confidence and then I, I, people would ask me, oh, how do you do this or is this possible? And I'd be like, yep, you know, let me double check and I'd quickly be back on the phone or on the computer and I'd be checking it. They're like, yeah, it's fine. But I think it's just sort of keeping that level of confidence as well, but also not taking people down the garden path and having a really honest approach with everything that I did. From the early days, are some of those mentors still the same people or did you have to access a different type of mentor in the early days to what you do now? One of my mentors is a Jesuit priest by the name of Father Michael Kelly, and he started a business that turns over $160 million a year using the church as a buying group. And he's the most honest guy I've ever met. His moral compass is unbelievable. So he was great through the startup time. And then about maybe five years ago, I sort of said, well, Mick, you know, my business is growing. And he was actually living overseas. And I said, I need a new person. And so he put me onto another gentleman who basically he grew a finance business from I think it was about 15 staff to 1500 staff globally and so he's an accomplished lawyer he's on the boards of a number of companies and so I catch up with him on a monthly basis I buy him lunch we sit down we go through some things and I'll say look Bill you know I'm having problems with this so I need hands with that so. Has there only been any times where your moral compass has maybe led you astray in the decision making process and how you maybe come back from any of those moments? Look I think that the answer is yes. I think sometimes you might sort of get a bit compromised when you know you need some money. You've got to pay your bills. Whatever. I'm not saying you're stealing or anything like that, but the advice you might give could be compromised. So what I learned very early on is you've got to give great advice. And just because you think you can make a sale doesn't mean you have to make the sale. And that hurts. Mm. But I think what's really served me well is always being honest to people and if you don't need a visa today I'll tell you I'll say look you don't need it. We had one of our clients who said we want to bring over a couple hundred people from overseas for an engineering project. I said give me a technical person we'll fly overseas I'll meet with the companies who are recruiting for you and basically we saw three companies and the company that they'd signed up with was just terrible they didn't have any pastoral care they had no idea how they're going to deliver it. The other two we found the project was going to be worth about $3.8 million including recruitment fees. Our fees probably would have been three or 400000 I got back and I said, look, the mining boom's actually coming off. You can find local people and train them up using government subsidies. And we saved the company about $3.6 million. And I missed out on the fees. So the moral of the story with that is, you know, yes, it hurt because I thought, well, this is great. There's a huge win. I'm going to make a lot of money. But money's not the game. I mean, I always look at money as like oxygen, you know, you can't take all the oxygen in the room, no matter how hard you try, it comes and it goes, you know, so it's the quality of the air you're breathing in. Yeah. And talking a little bit about the drivers and some of your drivers, I had a little chat with you before we kicked off and you were also talking about competition as well. So can you give the audience some insights into the competition and how that motivates you? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I love business itself. I like looking at business and how different business operates. And one thing I've really learned is when you go to big companies, you actually realise that the people in there working at high levels actually don't know a lot. You expect you're going to get to the huge ASX listed companies and the person in HR is going to be this amazing, well-rounded. But actually, a lot of them are still stumbling around. And so that interests me a lot. I think that you know, to get to those levels, I think, wow, how can this big organisation possibly operate with these people in the roles? And so as far as competition is going, I've had a number of competitors approach me to buy me out. And they say, we like your business, you know, I want to buy you. And I just think, look, I'd prefer to compete with you. Why am I going to sell to you? I don't believe in what you do. I believe in where I'm going and what I'm doing and our capabilities and our capacity. And, you know, if I was 65 or 70 or 80, maybe look at selling. But I think that that's really what gets me out of bed. I think, you know, just the fact that 
you're running your own show, that it is the decisions you make. As long as you own every decision, you can't sit there and blame, oh, the market's turned down or I've done the wrong. You just go, okay, that's on me. What about the difficult moments where maybe self-belief isn't always there? How do you overcome those moments? You always get your days to question yourself and you hear the cliche about all these stories about business people who got told they can't do it, can't do it. I sort of got told I could do it. You know, everyone's, oh yeah, you'll be great at it, this will be great. And it was actually more demotivating than someone telling me I couldn't do it because then it you know, just didn't, I don't know, have the same sort of feel. But there's moments that you doubt yourself, there's no doubt about it, but I think that really coming back to yourself, and one thing my dad did actually tell me, because we're dealing with people at a very emotional level, you know, moving people to a new country and getting their visa and enabling them to stay, it's a highly emotional business. I can't think of, I mean, I suppose, you know, medicine and to a lesser extent real estate would be a similar level, but you know, you're dealing with people's lives. And so what he said to me, he said, just make sure you keep something for yourself. Like, so I'll go for a surf and then, you know, I'll get in the ocean or do whatever and just make sure I can really recalibrate. I have a highly supportive wife. Um, I've got some good mentors around. So it's just making sure that I think you have that level of support on the journey. And as I said, being honest in the way you act and the way you treat people and not ripping people off, that puts you in good stead. Mm -hmm. Can you give us some examples of when moments in your business haven't been going the way you wanted them to? Yeah, absolutely. Back in 2006, I was in Melbourne and my business was just pumping. It was, you know, we were going great guns. I looked around the office, I had 10 staff and I thought, I'm bored. You know, I want to go do something different. So I said, I'm going to open up in Brisbane. And there was 1% vacancy rate in Brisbane at the time. And so just before the GFC hit, that very peak, that pin of the spike is the second I signed a lease on an office. And I'm telling you, like the world fell apart. And life doesn't give you one thing at a time. It actually gives you everything. So I had a downturn in the market. I'd employed three staff up there. I had 10 staff in Melbourne. I put a general manager on who was just a nightmare. She just put all my staff offside, so five staff quit. My EA was stealing money. She stole about 70 grand off me. And then because of that, actually got taken to court for fraud because of a document that she'd put into the Department of Immigration. So you can imagine, it was bloody stressful. Anyway, so I had five staff in Melbourne resign and went up with a sack of cash and I came back with zero. But anyway, so I packed up the office overnight, literally overnight, and I had a call from the building manager and they said, are you doing a runner on us? And I said, no, 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 I've just got to save my business in Melbourne. So I turned up to Melbourne, uh, basically five agents down, so the people who did the work, and two agents in Brisbane who were now gone, and I walked in, the general manager said, oh, what are you doing here? And I said, I've come to save my business. And she said, okay, I resign. I said, perfect, that's fine. And then my now wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, she said, look, if you have to work 12 hours a day, seven days a week to get this back on track, that's what you've got to do. And so I did six months. It was, would have been 12 to 16 hours a day. I took on all the caseload of everyone else and I basically just put my head down and just batted on. And it was tough. And so my girlfriend or now wife would come in and, and we'd have dinner and then I'd sort of toddle off back to work. And it was tough. It was really tough. But I, I tell you, every single one of those things that happened, it's the old cliche, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It's so true. I mean, I'm thankful for every single aspect of, of all the things that happened because it just taught me so much. It was like that massive kick up the ass that I needed to pay attention to my finances. You know, I had a bookkeeper. I trusted my bookkeeper. I trusted this person. You know, you trust people. And I'm not saying you can't trust people, but I'm saying putting systems and processes in place 
so you can check those things. Because, you know, we all hear about bookkeepers taking money. And one thing I find is people who are going into business don't want to face up to certain aspects. I don't want to be the accountant. I don't want to be the salesperson. I don't want to be whatever. I want to be the technician. But the reality is that you actually have to go, okay, I'm in the business. I need to grow myself in that area. I need to develop it. I need to get good people. I need robust systems that have redundancies in place that if something goes wrong, that I'm alerted pretty quickly. At that time then, how did you build up the trust? And obviously you talked about the processes, but was it easy, I don't know, maybe after a few months to, to drop back from? You know what, when I got back and getting things back on track, and as I said, I was sort of going through this court process as well. And the funny thing is, we lost at the magistrate court. And so to be, get told by a magistrate, oh, you're guilty for fraud, you're going, hang on a second, I didn't do it. So I went and saw a wonderful barrister in town and he said, oh, well, what was going on? And he sort of found the accounts and he found this girl was stealing. And it was just bizarre how it all unfolded. And then I went to the county court and, you know, obviously was let off and got costs and all that sort of stuff. So you can imagine I'm going through the 12 hour days trying to sort of get things back on track. I've got five staff instead of 10. And it was tough, but it was, it was great. It just really, I suppose, redefined who I was as a person and just you know, reinforced my values. Mm -hmm. What about the hiring process now? If you do need to make any new hires, do you instill that from the off? How do you? I have a few values that I hold very highly. Um, Obviously one is integrity. I know it's a bit of a throwaway one that everyone wants to put on their company values, but just making sure are people honest? Would they give back money if they found it on the street? Would they go back into a shop and pay something that they forgot about? To me, that's where you you need to be. I think fun. Fun's got to be in my top three values. If I'm not having fun what I'm doing, then forget it. I had one client who was so rude to one of my staff, he'd ring up an abuser and I was like, okay, your next visa is an extra $500. And he said, oh, what are you doing? And I said, well, you know, this is our annual sort of fee raise. And then the next month he said, okay, I want to do it again. And I increased it by 500 again. And he said, oh, I'm going elsewhere. And I said, great. Mm-hmm. Life's too short to put up with people like that and you shouldn't be treated like that in business. And I always say that when you go into business, you're like a dog chasing everything. You know, you will chase a kid on a scooter, you will chase an old lady in a pusher, you will chase someone in a wheelchair. It doesn't matter because you're out there. But as you get along and as you get older, you sort of sit on the porch and at the moment, I'll only get up if there's a double-decker bus full of fat Germans going past and then I'll get off my porch to chase the business. But what I'm saying is the amount of energy that you expend on doing those sort of things is really high. But back to your question on the, the employment of staff. So in my business, obviously having the technical knowledge is important. It's another lesson I learned. I employed a guy who'd been doing it for you know 10 or 15 years, the immigration game, and he gave such poor advice, I realised he actually didn't know much. And I thought, well, how is he giving that advice to all the other clients? So now all of my potential agents have seven case studies and I give them complex case studies to see how they go, how they answer questions, how they think, how they research. And that's great. It's not just a personality-based thing. Mm -hmm. And what does the future hold maybe in the next five years for you? The immigration space, as you know, is changing, you know, so rapidly, particularly in Australia. I think that it's misrepresented. I think that the government's treated the migration space very poorly and like a cash cow. And so where the Australian government's going is more to automation, work on algorithms, and you say, okay, you come from a certain country, a certain age, you have a certain qualification, you've got more chance of getting a visa, but if there's any discrepancies in relation to what you do, there's probably a chance you won't get it. But our view is more outward, as far as not just doing just Australia-centric, we're in New Zealand, you know, we go to PNG, to China, we do visas for all these other countries, and so we think that it's just about the global movement of people and, and helping, you know, particularly organisations do that and do it well. Yeah. Okay. 
Can we have a round of applause for Jamie Ling of Absolute Immigration? Thank you very much, Jamie. Thank you. I loved how Jamie said, money is like oxygen, it comes and goes. What a great analogy. So if you can't take all the oxygen in the room, it makes sense that you can't take all the money in the world either. Next up, we'll hear from the Managing Director of JAG Capital, Graham Van Dam. Masters Series is presented by We Teach Me. Whether you want to improve your photography, taste whiskey, or paint a teapot, We Teach Me has a class to build your soft skills and have fun. Learn what makes your heart beat at weteachme.com. This podcast is produced by Written and Recorded. A podcast is an intimate medium where you can share your business story without anyone knowing that you're blushing. Listen to more tales at writtenandrecorded.com. And now, back to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Ad Guy. Graham Van Dam has led businesses in aviation, resources, mining, manufacturing and construction. One of those businesses he grew from $4 million in annual sales to $32 million in just six years. In this fireside chat with We Teach Me's Wayne Lewis, Graham says you're only as good as your last project and you have to perform. Originally I was a mining engineer. I'd worked in Australia, Indonesia, in the UK and then moved back to Australia in 2004. At the time, you know, I was offered a role with this drilling company that was based in Melbourne, basically on half the salary that I had been receiving working in the mining industry out in the back of Queensland and Indonesia, or going back and working for BHP as a dragline engineer. And when I went for the interview, the owner at the time, Bill Sides, said to me, and he was in his 60s, basically said, look, within a couple of years, you're going to be running this joint. And I was a 26-year-old, and I thought, oh, this is going to sound pretty cool. So I started with them, and then, you know, it was a business that very much first, second, third generation. So at one point, it was the largest privately owned drilling company in the Southern Hemisphere. But unfortunately, through Bill's ownership, the market had changed, become a lot more compliant, there was a lot more competition, and they basically had struggled. They'd sold off their piling division, it was very competitive in Melbourne. And when I started with them, we only had about 15 employees. We had an operations manager, you had a part-time bookkeeper, and about 15 staff. So we're turning about four million in year, uh, turnover a year, making no money. We Basically, over the next two years, we had the amazing opportunity to partner with Woodside. So they were looking for a local company to tick the local content box on their tenders to do all their nearshore geotechnical drilling. So part of the drilling services that we did was all the site investigations that were close to coastal areas, but off jack-up barges. But to do that for Woodside, you had to actually have an Australian standard level type OH&S system, which is what with them I had developed. And that was a lot of my background with the mining companies and with these. And we just grew from that. So once we became a tier one contractor to Woodside, we basically could write our ticket because, you know, all of the Chevrons and Woodsides and Fortescue Metals and BHPs and all these other companies then had a local supplier that ticked the local content were able to deliver this thing. So rolls on to, you know, mid-2005, 2006, and we've gone 4 million, 6 million, 8 million in, in sales, we're starting to make some money. Bill tried to put the business on the market. I think in the 12 months he had it for sale, I think they had one person come through the door. And I just flippantly said to one of the other, the operations manager, I said, why the hell don't we buy it? 
And he sort of said, nah, he's kidding. Why would we want to buy this thing? I thought, well, shit, for the amount of money that's coming down the pipeline, why the hell not? So I started talking to all these PE firms and corporate advisories, and they're all talking about these 20 grand retainers each month and yada, yada, yada. And I was like, there's no hope in hell I'm, I can afford it. And I went to my subsequent business partner. I said, oh, he said, no, don't be silly. He said, he'll give it to us. I said, what are you talking about? He said, oh, we'll just buy it on vendor terms. And the promise was that we'd make him more money as our partner than he has in the previous 20 years. And so we basically bought it for nothing, bought 80% of it. And then we rode the mining boom. So we did the desal project, we did the channel deepening, we did all of the Fortescue metals expansions, all the browse, Pluto, Black Tip, PNG LNG, all the LNG projects. So we just rode this thing. And in those days, you know, one of the biggest lessons I've learned is, you know, pick an industry with tailwinds because I keep trying to relearn that one. But the thing is, even when we screwed up, we made money. So we bought the business 2006, 2007. All of my business partners were 20 plus years older than me. And I'm looking at the market going, I've got massive key man risk here, so I've got to work out and get some other production drilling into it. So we started trying to acquire other companies and the private equity companies and firms were just buying these things on massive models. So bugger it, we'll sell it. So we did, so we ended up selling that thing for uh, what's that, six, an eight figure number. Bill took more money off the table at that transaction than he had in the previous 20 years. We sold 80%, so we basically rolled up within this uh, amalgamation of three drilling companies with a private equity firm. So we closed that deal in 30th of June 2008, and Lehman Brothers went bust in September of that year. So we were on a trajectory, and they went like this. And I learned from the PE guys that they just doubled down, and they went and bought more companies, and then away we went. So we ended up exiting to Transfield for yeah, $575 million in 2010, and I lasted three months. We had a little chat before as well about the after effects of that buyout and when you sold out and everything else. Can you give some insights as to the barriers that you came up against after that? You know, you go from running your own show and basically in complete control. And yeah, I had business partners, but our board meetings per se was basically sitting around having a glass of scotch on a Friday afternoon going, what are we going to do next week? What's ahead of us? What are we going to bid for? And that was the extent of it. Whereas when we moved into the PE with the PE guys, they without a doubt put a massive level of oversight and compliance, which wasn't a bad thing, but we obviously have to step up and professionalise all of our systems and processes. Because from day one, we knew we were either going to list or we are going to sell to a listed company. And that was a phenomenal learning curve. It was a case of, all right, you know, Jim, I need to buy an engine. Do I buy an engine? Yep, go, I've done two. All right, I've got to get approvals. And during those days of the private equity guys, as long as you're within a budget, not a problem. But as soon as you miss your budget, they're all over you. So there was a lot of still freedom to operate. And then when we rolled off into the ASX company, very, very different culture, much, much bigger organisation, and just the levels of compliance and bureaucracy stepped down, which was, you know, in my view, beyond what I was happy to operate in. So I ended up leaving pretty quickly. Throughout of all these processes, and obviously you're at the top of the, the scale there, how do you handle the stresses? What's your... At the time when we're selling, I still remember the phone calls with the corporate advisories at 1am in the morning when we were doing the deal. The reason we sold for the business so well was we had no depth in the organisation. There was literally myself, my business partner who ran the operational side, I ran the commercial finance side, and we had an admin manager, and that was, that was the management team. You know, you're pulling 60, 70 hour weeks, and then you do a transaction on top of that, which has got 
you know, all the hours and managing DD and we had a good corporate advisory guys, but at the end of the day, we're the ones who got to answer the stuff. So at the end of that journey, I ended up spending a week in hospital, burnt out at the age of 31, and I've never, ever worked those sort of hours again. I chose not to, you know. So how do I manage stress nowadays? It's, you know, I work, I'm in the office generally from half past eight. I get home generally at five o'clock, Monday to Friday. My business is a product business, not a service business, the business I have at the moment. You know, I'm heavily involved with scouts with my kids. You know, we do a lot of travel. I, you know, I've got a very good general manager that runs the day-to-day -day of the business, so I have zero client-facing, effectively zero supplier-facing role in my business now. And that comes with a cost, but at the same time, it gives me the freedom to be able to do what I choose to do. So my view of business, and for me, the businesses are there a vehicle to fund the lifestyle that I want to create for myself and my kids. I'm fortunate I've ticked the box, I've got the T-shirt for growing a the big business and I've had the, the massive staff and the rest of it and I just don't want to play in that space anymore. What were some of the things that maybe some of the hurdles that you came across, the big blockers for yourself that made things really difficult? Oh, it's not so much blockers, it's just workload. You know, at the end of the day, with service businesses, I mean, we're all contractors, so it's highly competitive. We're working on massive projects. I mean, they're multi-billion dollar projects. So. You know, the likes of Woodside and those sort of companies, their tolerance for delays and all the rest of it is just zero. So you have to perform, otherwise you're only as good as your last deal or your last project, otherwise you're not going to get the next one. And then you overlay that where myself and you know, I had four business partners, they were relying on me to get the deal done. And sure, there was elements where they were contributing, but I sort of made my bed, I had to sleep in it. So I sort of led it down this path that we, you know, I thought it was a good idea, let's have a crack and let's see what happens. Well, you look around and a business of that size, you sort of try to turn around and see who's going to take up the slack and there's no one behind you, it's left to you. So it's just the nature of the game, working in the businesses that we work in. And if we look to where you are today, you've got a new business, which is the engines, you're in the engines yep. game. So can you give us a little bit of an insight to that and how your decisions and the way in which you want to manage that business is different to how you used to do things? Yeah, so I got out of the drilling company thinking I knew everything and started playing in the venture capital and seed investment stuff and lost a lot of money in IT, waste, all sorts of other silly crap I shouldn't have gone anywhere near. I bought this business five years ago because at that stage I was involved in these other companies which I subsequently have gotten out of or shut down. You know, it was a solid business, it had been around for 30 years, it was a product, not a service, it had a good solid team run under management. It was in the automotive space which I thought was a cottage industry which is like similar to the drilling where I'd be able to, you know, consolidate and do what I did with the drilling company. And then you get in there and you get a 20% hit on the top line and all of a sudden you're in turnaround phase pretty quick. So whilst, yes, it ticks all the boxes, the drilling company, I was had a business at Tailwinds and now I'm facing headwinds, you know, and then you overlay the thematic of electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles and an ageing workforce, an industry that people don't want to be employed in, Chinese imports. I don't know many other competitive games. It's interesting, I go through my decision logics, I think the decision would have still been the same because I don't fault the decision process. I just in hindsight, I should never have actually taken the original IM. Okay. So, but it's just the nature of it, yeah. Do you talk about resilience and, and the hard work ethic there? Is there any other values that you hold close to your heart, your organisation? Yeah, I mean, we do. We, um, you know, my philosophy is, uh, as far as R&D goes, it's rip off and duplicate. So, we continuously improve. We've ripped off Atlassian's thing so we don't screw our clients. 
So we run through these sort of things, you know, open and honest, it's, you know, the integrity type thing you sort of say, well, you know, we want to have your own word, you know, your, your open and honest conversations. So one of the questions I always ask is, you know, when is it okay to lie? If you're a parent, you say, well, you know, so it's, it's an interesting way of seeing where people's um, views of that is. And I don't have them plastered all over the walls, but we are continuously talking about it. The business which I bought, you had situations where the sales team didn't actually know what promotions were actually in the marketplace at the time. Whereas I've walked in there and very candidly, and we had to because we had to do a restructure pretty quickly, was, you know, here's the revenue numbers, here's the profit numbers, this is what it costs to actually produce a product, and that's why it's no longer competitive. Continuously communicating it. And it gets to the point where now, you know, I know I've got a workforce on the factory floor that are knocking down my door telling me they want me to get back in front of them and talk to them because I haven't done it for a few weeks. Next week. We'll get there next week. Keeping them on the same path, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, they want to know where they're going. They're not silly. They know they can see the industry wins as well. Guys, can we have a round of applause for Graham Van Dam, please? So at the age of just 31, Graham found himself burnt out and hospitalised. The lesson there is your business should be the vehicle for the lifestyle that you want. Thanks, Graham. And thank you, Jamie, as well. Next time on Master Series, Business and People, Culture and HR. From forming and storming to norming and performing, building a great team is vital to your startup and we'll hear from two experts on how to hire well. Until then, I'm Sarah Shenelmish from Written and Recorded and for We Teach Me, this is the Master Series. <music>